good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, it's breakfast somewhere. So eat up. Welcome to Breakfast with Vinny. Food for thought. Freedom. With freedom comes responsibility. The end. No, I'm not stopping there. This has now become yet another buzzword of contention. Why? Well, we have to look at the contextual application here and how that's changed depending on who's using it and or giving the message. As a pushback, we'd often hear, my freedoms, which was a pushback mantra during 2020 and 2021 that basically pinpointed a conceptual war between the ideas of, we know what's best for you versus, I know what's best for me. Oversimplified here, obviously. But that's not entirely inaccurate either. It's a clash of worldviews. That clash of worldviews, dare I say it, yet I will, used a global problem to suggest the idea that the we know what's best for you was the one that would be the working winner. But the we know what's best for you idea is in a worldview which also contains other ideas such as collectivism, hive mind, and even an ostensibly beautiful idea that I'm not invalidating here, the greater good. It may be apparent that more extreme ideas are contained in that worldview as well, which again, I'm not attaching a value judgment upon here. Rather, I'm merely pointing them out. Ideas like altruism or even martyrdom. But again, even those are contextual to the point that one can be isolated contextually in a situation that does not necessarily justify anything else in the larger worldview in which it may be contained. Being a martyr for the actual freedom of the whole, victorious over the oppression of the whole, is also for the benefit of each individual. Each individual benefits from a freedom that respects the individuality and individual freedom, which of course then applies to the whole. Julius Ruchel, in his essay, How to Lift Society from the Ashes of Postmodernism, wrote, quote, There's nothing more sacred than the idea of individual rights. That idea, when it is shared by the bulk of society, allows each of us individually to be the master of our own destiny. That sacred idea allows us to exist as something other than as resources for the benefit of the herd, as something more than just cogs in someone else's machine, end quote. Without getting ahead of myself here, which brings me to the question, why the polar opposition then? It's a loaded one. But first, a word from our sponsor. No, just kidding. So then you have the idea of, I know what's best for me, or individualism, let's say. Not to say that that phrase sums up what individualism is. No, but it definitely shines a light on an aspect of it, at least. Some may say one actually does not know what is best for themselves, citing examples to reinforce that. Let's modify it. One has the right via freedom, to not be forced or be told what someone else tries to convince them is right for them. Suddenly, we see that idea differently. So if we let people have this so-called freedom, then how do we know that they will act responsibly? Ruchel writes, quote, The founding fathers laid the philosophical foundations for classical liberal democracy. Even the word liberal comes from liberty. 
Liberal democracy is a democracy restrained by the limits imposed by individual rights. The founding fathers recognized that if individual rights are not inalienable or sacred, the rule of the democratic majority would soon become nothing more than tyranny by the majority, also known as mob rule. He goes on to say, when principles cease to be the anchor around which society is built, the only alternate anchor that can prevent society from fracturing into a million warring tribes is to anchor society around the raw authority of its leaders and to defend their authority at any cost, even when they lie, cheat, steal, or are grossly incompetent. And right on cue, our technocratic leaders are instinctively trying to wrap themselves in an aura of divinely ordained power that shall not be questioned in order to shield themselves from challengers to the throne, end quote. In this society, and for that matter, in so-called civilized societies, we have the rule of law. Can that be trusted to be enforced without corruption? No. Is the judicial system to be trusted without corruption? No, not anymore. Well, what then? Well, how about how one is raised? The ideas that are instilled in one from the beginning, ages zero to six, for example. The ideas that are instilled in one and observed by example of those around them. Those ethics that are then instilled into society so firmly entrenched that society would collectively behave towards one another with respect and dignity and order and so on, whilst allowing specific differences of expression that do not harm another. To quote Ruchel again, quote, even the clearest of principles will be rationalized away if an indebted majority becomes dependent on a morally bankrupt system, end quote. Now, this is, of course, not allowing for ethical conundrums, so to speak, and we need not insert any here to unnecessarily complicate matters. Complicating matters unnecessarily is part of the problem as well or turning a personal beef into a vindictive vendetta through indoctrination in an educational system just to get one's way because that whim is an actual law. That, too, is part of the problem. That's not the environment for the installation of those ideas as absolute into the minds of the impressionable many. It's not the same thing as fostering critical thinking or imaginative thinking. It's purely indoctrination. But since we've seen a decline in civil discourse, is that a surprise? Or can it possibly be at least partially traced to that, as well as other forms of persuasion? I say this simply because if enough people had that same compass that was very strong, then those things would be much more easily recognizable and called out for what they are, and even opposed to the point of not allowing them to take hold in society. And so back to this polarization of individualism and the collective, which I believe is totally manufactured in the present time. If an individual gets arrested, it used to be that the officer would say, you have the right to remain silent. Then he would read the individual's rights to them, which applied to the whole as well, to the collective society. If we can understand this, then we can see that in actuality, there really is no schism. Why then would I think that it's manufactured? Control, but an unwarranted control. 
Controlling a wild horse or a criminal or even a fire is not the same thing as purposefully attempting to control society for reasons that undermine freedom and instead promote oppression to the point that the people don't even care anymore. This would obviously take sophisticated psychological means. Don't think it not possible. Think advertising. Edward Bernays, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, spoke about this and even revealed it in his own book, originally published in 1928, simply called Propaganda. Considered the father of propaganda, he pioneered the scientific technique of shaping and manipulating public opinion, which he called engineering of consent. That is quoted directly from the book itself, the back cover, in fact. But let that sink in for a moment if we're to actually think that our thoughts and ideas are our own. They should be, and they would be, if they were demonstrated to us early on. I say that also because it's been shown through anthropological studies that people of all races and places all have the same inbuilt reactions to things such as murder, for example. The same immediate inbuilt response of abhorrent, abject horror, grief, sadness, joy, euphoria, etc. All are stimulated universally in the same way and are the same in the entire human species. That is also the reason that they can be so easily manipulated. But we already know that. Really? How well do you really know it? If we knew it that well, then we would see that what is being normalized in society now is not innately normalized by default in human beings. It has to be installed and manipulated, and we'd be able to see it happening. But no, we need to be convinced of it. Hence the scientific technique cited in the book quote, and his own brilliant phrase, the engineering of consent. Just think about that once again for just a few moments. I'll even be more redundant and repeat it, this time a bit more slowly. The engineering of consent. So if we're going to persuade, let us be responsible with that versus denouncing our freedoms as some sort of trite concept or some archaic idea that doesn't belong in the here and now. That sort of warfare is taking place as we speak with social media monitoring and violating service agreements, which can oftentimes seem arbitrary and nonsensical and other times seem to be heavily biased. Those who uphold this will say, they're private companies. They can do whatever they want. And if you don't like it, get off and go somewhere else. Oh, really? Like where? These companies are the carriers of public medium. They are the new town square. And by doing what they're doing, they're censoring by proxy, plain and simple. That they are a private business versus the government is the perfect excuse to exercise that proxy since this is where most of the conversation takes place anyway. But when the government admits to working with them to monitor misinformation, whatever that is, according to them and only them, of course, then that, my friends, is a horse of another color. Sorry. Now you have the government actively and admittedly working with them to basically, in their own redefined and reworded terms, censor people. And now you have an underhanded way of violating the First Amendment. This is just something to consider, like it or not. 40 years ago, this wasn't even a twinkle or a glimmer of a concept that existed in public discourse. Some comedians, 
maybe Don Rickles, for example, may he rest in peace, might not be able to get a gig today. I would bet that he wouldn't if he were alive, not doing what he did, not even close. Am I condoning or condemning what he did? No. Once again, just making a point. So why am I going on and on and on about this? Because it's that important, plain and simple. It just is. It's important in ways that should be self-evident, but apparently they're not anymore. They have to be reinforced and reinforced and reinforced and shoved at us just the way that those other countermeasures are shoved at us constantly to manipulate us. So just keep reminding yourself that we wouldn't have had our way of life if it wasn't for that freedom. And that applies to how we deal with music and even play our instruments for that matter. It's no different. You can hear on one of the other episodes where John McLaughlin was talking about needing parameters in order to be free. And it's true. You need to be aware of parameters. You have to understand that in order to be free so that you can understand freedom in that context and against what is not free. Otherwise, it's just pure chaos. You can't understand playing free unless you know what it's like to not play free. And so you have certain parameters that actually enable you to be freer. And so that doesn't mean that I'm calling for certain oppressive things as an analog to that in society. Not at all. So let's not twist that one around. It just means that we have to understand parameters. Otherwise, we're just sort of flailing around meaninglessly. So we assign meaning to things. And whether or not we're assigning meaning to things because they have intrinsic meaning and we're just recognizing them, or we're assigning meaning to them so that we can recognize it, is not a distinction that nullifies what I'm saying. It just isn't. So to wrap up, it's one thing to poo-poo and demean and moan about freedom and my freedoms when we have the freedom to do so. And another to bear witness to that freedom from the outside without being able to have it ourselves. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of Breakfast with Vinny.